good morning. Oh, that was a good one. We're awake today on a rainy day. Sorry about this. It takes me like a while to carry this thing up here. I mean, this is big and bulky and heavy, um, but I need it. This is my, this is my throne here. Uh, <laughs> well, good morning to everybody. My name is Johnny Brower. I want to welcome you to First Methodist this morning. I serve as the student pastor here, um, and that will become apparent here in just a little bit as some of my jokes are a little uh, less mature than Pastor David's. Um, <laughs> But I, I do, I, I love getting to be here and, and preach um, for David or Mike anytime they ask me. It is such an honor to, to get to share the pulpit with them. So uh, thank you for letting me be here with you this morning here in the well and upstairs in the well cafe. Um, just, just an absolute privilege. I want to extend a special welcome to any of you that are visiting for the very first time. Um, if there's any questions that we can answer for you, any way that we can provide resources or help or prayers, um, I invite you to stop by our connecting point directly after the service. We'd love to, to meet you and share those things with you. So I'd like to ask a couple favors of you before we get started today. I know you didn't think there was going to be some obligations to coming to worship. Uh, the first is this. You were handed one of these. This is the bulletin on the way in. On the back of that bulletin, you'll see a bunch of blank lines with the heading notes. Um, this is for notes. Um, so if you uh, find anything here that, that speaks to your heart this morning, whether it was one of the songs that you want to remember or a specific lyric, um, a scripture reference, or maybe one of the notes um, that you'll see up on the screen up here, I invite you to write that down there so that you can remember it. Uh, the second thing is at the bottom of that page, you'll find a website, growpraystudy.org. There you can find daily devotionals that are written by our pastors here at First Methodist that coincide with any of our sermons that we're doing. Uh, and it's such an excellent resource for you um, to take the next step in your devotional life. It can take anywhere from five minutes to 50 minutes um, if you want it to, um, but it is just a fantastic resource that we provide for free, for you, um, please visit that website and, and check that out there. And lastly, um, if you would please open your Bible in whatever form you brought it, whether it's digital or the old paper version, um, if you will take that open to ch uh, Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verse 9 through 13 a little bit later. I just want to give you plenty of time to find it and, and get there. So last week we began a new series called The Gospel According to Disney. Now, I love Disney movies. I always have. Uh, I can remember at a super young age, some of my earliest memories, being at my grandparents' house and watching uh, Robin Hood and The Sword in the Stone over and over and over again on their Betamax. Does anybody remember Betamax players? I don't know if we have that picture. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Does anybody still have a Betamax player? Good. <laughs> We've got new technology now. But I can remember going to their house and taking that little bitty tape, putting in that giant machine <laughs> and, and watching Robin Hood and Sword in the Stone over and over and over again. I loved it. Even today as a 30-plus-year-old father, um, I love getting to sit down with my son and watch any of the new Disney movies, the latest one that's come out, or even sharing some of the ones that I watched as a kid with him. And often I think I'm enjoying them probably more than he is, um, but I do, and I think it's because, and this was the hypothesis from last, last week that David said, that, that Disney tells compelling stories, stories that seem to resonate with us, stories that speak to that inner child. Some of us have buried way deep in there, but there, there is that inner child still, and we see it, and that, that whimsy and wonder that happens in these movies, it, it, it resonates with us. I think these stories are also compelling because 
they speak to our human condition. David also talked about that these stories, though Disney constantly comes out with new movies, um, it's, it's a story that is old. It's as old as time. We know this story. Um, it's told over and over again, whether it's through media or it's played out in our own lives. It speaks to our human condition. It's stories of brokenness and, and rejection and hurt and loss and, and lament and, and, and a need for restoration or, or redemption. I think that's why these stories also resonate with us. It's a story that we all know. It's a story we all love. Um, it's a story we all need because it's our story too. So throughout this series, we're going to be spending some time looking at some of the incredible stories told through the lens of Disney and, and, and these stories and how they speak to us and our longing for redemption and our need for, for healing and restoration. So last week, Pastor David uh, introduced uh, this series and talked about the movie The Lion King. Uh, so if you missed that or you want to hear it again, I encourage you to go to firstmethodistmansfield.org slash media. There you can find that message and an archive of um, lots of our old messages uh, for you there. This week, though, we're going to be looking at the movie Aladdin. This is one of my favorites. I love Aladdin. It was released to theaters in 1992, um, and it quickly became the highest grossing movie that year and went on to be the highest grossing animated movie of all time for two years until The Lion King came out. <laughs> but it did hold that title for just a little bit. It even won a couple Academy Awards, one for Best Original Song for A Whole New World, um, that great duet, a beautiful duet between Aladdin and Jasmine. The story of Aladdin, as told by Disney, is loosely based on the original Aladdin story, Aladdin and the Magic Lamp. That's part of a collection of stories in A Thousand and One Arabian Nights. Now, I'm going to give you a synopsis of the movie version, the Disney version, and if you haven't seen it yet, um, there are, this does contain spoilers, okay? But you've had 22 years to see it, so <laughs> I don't feel real bad about it, but if you're still thinking, and one of the notes you just wrote down was, I got to see Aladdin, just cover your ears for five minutes. I'll let you know when to take your hands off, okay? The story follows the adventures of a boy named Aladdin. He's a homeless orphan forced to steal and cheat to survive. He has a sidekick, um, a monkey named Abu, and they're seen at the beginning of the film running away from these guards because they stole a loaf of bread and they're hungry and they need to eat. And throughout that scene and the song that kind of comes with that scene, um, you hear all these names, and, and Aladdin's referred to as street rat, whether it's the, the guards or the merchants or just the passers-by. Um, Aladdin's constantly reminded that he's an outcast, that he doesn't really belong there and nobody really wants him. He's rejected. He's less than. He's not good enough. And he's never going to amount to anything, really, other than a common criminal that's going to steal from other people and just kind of be a thorn in their side. But after a chance encounter with a disguised princess named Jasmine, Aladdin falls head over heels in love. But when he finds out that she's actually the sultan's daughter, he is reminded again that he is unworthy because the law states that only a prince can marry a princess. Then Aladdin gets caught up in Jafar's plan. Jafar is the sultan's grand vizier. Gets caught up in this plan uh, to, for Jafar to find this magic lamp so that he can ultimately usurp the sultan and become, uh, uh, get ultimate power, right? He wants to be in charge of everybody. And this is where Aladdin meets the genie. 
the genie from the lamp, voiced by the incomparable Robin Williams, who practically steals the whole movie. (laughs) But Aladdin uh, wishes to become a prince uh, because he knows that his real self isn't good enough. Nobody likes him. And if he's ever going to get the girl, then he's going to have to be somebody else other than who he actually is. So he wishes to become this prince, uh, and his name is Prince Ali, right? But much to his surprise, Jasmine isn't much interested in Prince Ali either. Well, of course, the movie goes on, and of course, there's got to be some drama. So there's Jafar, who ends up uh, gaining possession of that magic lamp at some point and makes all these crazy wishes about being the sultan and being this powerful sorcerer, and it looks like everything is doomed. Uh, But here comes Aladdin to save the day. He outwits him and saves the kingdom. And in the end, the sultan sees Aladdin uh, in a whole new way, right? Not just this street rat and outcast, but somebody who was courageous and daring and saved the kingdom. And he ultimately changes the law and allows Jasmine and Aladdin to get married, and they live happily ever after. You can take your hands off your ears now. Now, as I watch this movie, um, as, as is with any, any movie you watch, and especially Disney movies, there's many things that you can pull from the movie that, oh, this is a really good lesson. This is something that I could learn uh, from the movie. This is something that resonates with me. But the one that stuck out the most um, as I watched this movie was how much everybody underestimated Aladdin. They kind of looked at Aladdin on the surface, and they underestimated him. They thought he was good for nothing. They kind of wrote him off from the very begin- beginning. He was good for nothing. He was riffraff. He was a street rat, an orphan, a vandal, a thief. But we find that this movie is a classic example of don't be too quick to judge somebody by their outward appearance because you may miss a diamond in the rough. You see, almost everybody counted him out. They called him all those terrible names. They thought, they, they thought for sure this is who Aladdin was. But we find out even from the very beginning after he finally, all that hard work to steal that loaf of bread and he gets away when he shares that with two little orphan children that don't have any food and are starving. He gives away. I mean, we find that Aladdin is compassionate from the very beginning, that he's trustworthy, he's courageous. And in the end, we find that he's sacrificial as well, sacrificing his final wish to save the genie, to set him free. Stories like this run throughout our scriptures as well. If we look through the Bible, uh, just... A few notables, Moses, uh, King David, Saul of Tarsus. Like we, we have these people that are counted out that are not worthy of really um, gaining the positions that they have. And yet we find that God works incredible things through people who are willing to be followers. It's amazing. So we see these all throughout. And I'm going to tell you one of those stories today. It comes from the Gospel of Matthew. In this story, we have an autobiographical account of Matthew being called by Jesus to be a disciple. You can also find this story in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, or the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. But in both of those stories, uh, they use a different name for him, Levi. So don't get confused when you see it there. But I figured we'd look at the Gospel of Matthew and let Matthew himself tell us how this went down. So here's the cool thing about this story. For those of you in this room or upstairs that are, that are consider themselves Christian, this is a really cool, inspiring, and encouraging story. My guess is you're going to like it. But also if you find yourself here this morning and, and you wouldn't consider yourself Christian, whether you were invited by a friend or you just kind of wandered in here, my guess is that you're also really going to love this story. Because this is really the heart of who Jesus is. 
love this story. So my guess is that anybody here is going to really love this story. So let's get started. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse 9. Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Pause right there. Time out. So there's two things we got to know before we move forward. And you may know this, uh, but if you, if you already know this, just keep nodding your head like it's something new you learned. If you don't know this, here you go. Some free stuff here. The first thing we got to know is that to be a disciple of a rabbi was an incredibly big deal. It was a great honor, and only the best of the best of the young boys that were in school um, got asked, invited to follow a rabbi. This was a huge deal. What a privilege, what an honor. Uh, and if you were in this school and you didn't quite measure up, they didn't think you had it, then you were, you were out. And you went and you practiced the family trade, which is not a bad thing. It just wasn't being a disciple of a rabbi. It didn't qu- carry quite the, the same esteem that that did. So uh, you would expect Jesus, the Son of God, right, coming to earth, when he's going to choose the 12 disciples, the 12 people that are going to follow him, the 12 people that will get to know him the best, the 12 people in which he's going to impart his wisdom and his ways, the 12 that he's going to eventually trust to build his church, to build his kingdom, you would think that Jesus comes down and he's going to go right to the temple, right? He's going to go right to the synagogues. He's going to be picking the best of the best. He's probably going to be poaching some disciples from other rabbis, right? I mean, to put this into today's terms, to kind of get a grasp of what this would be like, if Jesus were doing his earthly ministry here today, we would expect Jesus, when choosing his disciples, to be at the most prestigious of seminaries, at the largest churches, finding the most talented young men and women to come be his disciples, right? And we would all look on with him and be, oh, to be Jesus' disciple. They, they must be awesome people. Is that what Jesus did? No. Jesus, the Son of God, when choosing these 12 very important people, goes to the lake. He goes to the docks. He, he calls fishermen and tradesmen. He calls the doubters, the zealots, the revolutionaries, the rejecteds, the not good enoughs, and a tax collector. Ugh. Now, okay, the shutter was a little much, and, and, and why, why say that so dramatically at this long list of irony, right, that Jesus chose to be his disciples? Well, because that brings me to the second thing we need to know, is that tax collectors were bad news, right? To be a disciple, highly prestigious. Tax collector, not at all, right? So tax collectors were bad news. When we hear the word taxes today, sure, it evokes some emotion and probably some opinions that we have uh, uh, about that. But if we project our understanding of taxes today uh, onto the men and women that lived in the first century, especially in Rome, um, it loses some of its weight. Um, So to say taxes or or tax collector to a a Jewish man or woman that was living in that time would, would probably make their stomach turn pretty violently because a tax collector was a traitor. The Old Testament details, that's the first half of our our Bible, the Old Testament details how frequently um, Israel was in captivity 
was enslaved or was ruled over by a foreign nation, uh, whether it's the Egyptians or the Philistines, Babylonians, etc. Et and, and now they're ruled over Rome. And just like any of those other empires, those empires demand taxes. Lots of taxes. Lots and lots and lots of taxes. You think you pay a lot of taxes now. They paid lots of taxes. It was oppressive. This is an overly simplistic breakdown. So if you're like a history buff in here, don't don't light your torches, but this is just an overly simplistic breakdown of how this works, right? There's Caesar who rules over the entire empire, and he wants money, right? He needs taxes. And so then he uh, appoints these Roman officials over these different provinces or, or regions, right, to kind of... Um, have uh, to, to look over the law and to also collect those taxes. But of course, they're not going to actually collect the taxes themselves. Instead, they recruit and employ locals to collect those taxes from their own people. And then they get passed right back up the line. Let's do it really simply this way. Caesar says, I need a dollar from everybody. That's the tax. And those Roman officials tell those recruits that they got, hey, Caesar wants $2. So that they can keep a dollar and then send a dollar up to Caesar, right? Well, then those locals are collecting taxes like, hey, taxes are $3. <laughs> this was a lucrative business because, you know, what other incentive is there for a local to betray their own people, take their money, and give it to the enemy? Money and lots of money. Tax collectors were bad news. People hated them. If there was anybody they hated as much or possibly more than the Romans, it was a tax collector because they're working for Rome and they're, they're, they're traitors. They're giving up their own people. How could they do something like this? So what did Jesus see in Matthew that nobody else saw? Why would Jesus go up to somebody like that? The son of God, this rabbi, is calling his disciples and he goes up to a tax collector? What is it that Jesus saw in Matthew that maybe Matthew didn't even see in himself? I would have to think after years of doing this profession, there's some sort of callous that forms over Matthew's heart. And maybe he starts to believe this bad guy narrative that he has about himself. Maybe he has to act that out a little bit. What did Jesus see in Matthew that maybe Matthew didn't see in himself? Let's continue on. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, so... Matthew said, yes, follow me. Matthew says, yes. So they go to dinner at his house. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, my Bible has sinners in quotes, uh, sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, we'll pause here again. Uh, you know, the Pharisees, right? Pharisees, um, the keepers of the law, their, their whole job, their whole sort of persona was to be perfect, right? Or at least appear perfect. They were experts in the law. They knew how to follow it to a T, right? And they expected everybody else to do it. And when you couldn't, they looked down on you, right? They had their own followers and stuff. And so then they're, they're looking at Jesus. They, they stalk him kind of throughout his ministry, um, constantly confused by some of Jesus' tactics, things that he says, things that he does. Um, they often try to discredit him. And you see that here. Uh, they divisively sort of ask his disciples, so let me get this right. You think this guy's the son of God, right? And he's supposed to be a rabbi and everything. And you're following him, but do you see, I mean, what kind of rabbi would do that? What kind of rabbi would keep that kind of company? I mean, 
Do you feel like you made a wise choice here? I mean, this is, this is what they do, and, and, it's, and it's evident that they don't really approve of Jesus' choice of dinner guests. But then Jesus overhears them, and he says, On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I want you to go and learn what this means, which would have been really offensive to say to a Pharisee because they knew everything. Um, and he quotes, he quotes scripture to him from Hosea. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Pastor David reminded us last week that Jesus' story is one of redemption. That's what he lived. He lived a life that redeemed that restored people. It wasn't about maintaining. It wasn't about showing up and keeping the status quo. It was about him coming and restoring, redeeming this world that, that, that his father in heaven, that God had created. And it, and it was kind of spiraling this way and he was bringing it back. This was revolutionary because the, the, dominant narrative, uh, the dominant religious narrative at the time was that if you behave the right ways and you believe the right things, then you're in. You're welcome. But those two things first, we need to find you believe in the right things and behave in the right ways, and then you can come on in. Whereas Jesus kind of turns that on his head, and he says, hey, you're sitting at this tax collector's booth right now doing terrible things, but I want you to come follow me. I want you to start right now. No prerequisites other than the willingness to get up and come. That's what Jesus did, and that was so revolutionary. And by reaching out to Matthew, somebody who's wholly unqualified, somebody nobody wants to be there, who was incapable, at least perception was, that he was incapable of doing what Jesus was going to ask him to do, Matthew becomes incredibly significant. Because here we are, thousands of years later, gathered in this church, reading his words and his experience of walking with Jesus Christ. Across time and across the globe, Matthew's words, Matthew's experience that started with that one moment have led so many people to know the love and grace of our God through Jesus. How incredible. And if Jesus had seen Matthew like everybody else saw him, we don't have this gospel today. That's an incredible thought to have. So who was Matthew? Was Matthew this tax collector? Was he this evildoer or was he a disciple? Was he a traitor? Or was he the bringer of the greatest news the world has ever known? See, where the Pharisees saw somebody who was inadequate, Jesus saw potential. When the Pharisees somebody, saw somebody who was unqualified, Jesus saw somebody who was going to be significant. And where the Pharisees saw somebody who was hopeless, Jesus saw the hope of the world. What an incredible thought. So this leaves us with two questions to ask ourselves this morning before we leave. The first is this. What do you see when you see others? Do we see them as the Pharisees do or do we see them as Jesus does? I know I have this tendency, and it's, whether it's intentional or not, I don't know, but I'll see other people, and I often end up excluding them because they don't look like I think they should look. They don't say the right things. They don't act the right way. They don't believe the right things. So sometimes I inadvertently end up closing doors. 
But instead, should my life be more about inviting people in, regardless of who they are, where they've been, inviting people in to that life-changing, life-giving, redeeming love and grace of Christ Jesus? Is that what the Christian life is about? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says this, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And get this part right here. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. God has this wonderful habit of doing the unexpected, doing big and powerful things that nobody sees coming. What do you see when you see others? The second question is this. What do you see when you see yourself? What do you see when you see yourself? Do you have this narrative that goes on inside of you that says that you're inadequate or you're unworthy you're unqualified, you're hopeless. How could, how could I ever influence somebody? How could I ever lead somebody to Christ? I mean, if people really knew me, if I, my, my background, my past, I mean, I'll let somebody else who's lived a better life before this time do those things and I'll just keep coming to church. You know, do we have that that rolls through our head? Or do we see ourselves as Jesus sees us? Full of potential full of significance as the hope of the world. You, the hope of the world, that's how Jesus sees you. Um, I'm reminded um, of this, I'm going to paraphrase this quote, but it's from uh, a book called Velvet Elvis written by Rob Bell. And, and he mentioned, this is, this is something that radically changed my ministry and my personal ministry and, and thought process when it came to um, leading others to Christ. Um, Rob says that it's, it's a really good thing to believe in Jesus it's a really good thing to trust Jesus, but it is life-changing to know that Jesus believes in us, that Jesus trusts you with the building of his kingdom. What an empowering statement that is. He, he believes in us to bring about the whole new world that Jesus, that, that, that Jesus has planned for this world, the, this, this new, this dream that he had of building this whole new world that he has employed us to be a part of building that. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says that you are God's workmanship. You're his masterpiece. You're his handiwork. And you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. God can do extraordinary things through people who are simply willing to say, here I am, God. Use me. So let's begin living into that redemptive story that Christ lived, the, the story of redemption that he's called us all to live as Christians, that, that thing that defines our Christian life. Let's renew our willingness to say, yes, God, I will follow you. Let's break the chains and the barriers that are kind of blocking our own personal entry into that life. 
Let's get rid of those narratives that, that disqualify us from, from being a part of that, that redemption uh, story, that redeeming life that God has called us to. And I, and I hope that we can fearlessly and, and foolishly share that same love and grace to others, to know the love and grace that God has shared with us while we were still sinners. Let us not play the role of, of gatekeeper or, or, or bouncer, but let's, let us love unashamed. Let's not disqualify or discount or discredit, discriminate, but fearlessly and foolishly share that love that our Father in heaven shared with us. We're gonna end our time here with a, with a, with a time of prayer. And I'm gonna ask you to do something that may feel a little bit uncomfortable, maybe not, I don't know. Um, but we're going we're gonna to get our bodies involved in this prayer. So as you're sitting there and as we bow our heads and close our eyes, I want you to simply open your hands and lay them on your lap. This is a sign of openness and submission. Don't worry, we're all going to close our eyes. So nobody's going to see you doing it. Um, but I want you to do that as we, as we say this prayer, um, as, I, as I pray over us. And I'm going to leave a little blank space in the, in the, in the very beginning for you to say your, in your own way, uh, that, that God, here I am, use me. Picture yourself as Matthew sitting at that table and Christ just comes to you and says, let's go. And you just drop and you go. I'm gonna give you a moment to say that on your own and then I'm gonna pray for us, okay? Let's go to God in prayer. God of grace and mercy. You heal the sick. You open the eyes of the blind. You give hope to the hopeless and love to the unlovable. You breathe, li breathe life into our dry bones and you raise the dead in spirit to vibrant life again. Show us your ways, O oh God. Lead us to repentance. Give us courage to leave behind that which holds us back and move us forward into life eternal. Show us your people, O oh God. Give us eyes to see those that are overlooked. Give us a love like yours. Make us the bringers of joy, the bringers of peace, and the bringers of redemption. Today, God, we come to you with hearts, minds, and hands open to you. We submit to you, O oh God. We say, here I am, use me, my life is yours. God, I am no longer my own, but I am yours. Put me to what you will and rank me with whom you will. God, put me to doing or put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, God, let me be empty. Let me have all things or let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal, O oh God. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I am yours and you are mine. Amen.